coming to you from the Motor City. For the end of our first season, we have Dr. Jeffrey Jensen from the University of Michigan. Dr. Jensen was the chief medical examiner in Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, during the time of Jeffrey Dahmer's murders. You'll hear his perspectives and how he approached these cases. We'll also introduce Dr. Teresa Wen, who will be joining our team after finishing her fellowship here at the office. Enjoy this episode of Detroit's Daily Docket. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Lachman Sung, and this is the final episode of Season 1 for Detroit's Daily Docket. And although this is our final podcast episode for this season, we still will have our Instagram postings. And if you have questions, feel free to send us comments or questions through our Gmail account. And today we have a special episode for you. To put things bluntly, Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer was a serial killer and a sex offender. He was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in May 21st, 1960. And in 1978, at the age of 18, he began his killing spree. There is already so much that has been written about Jeffrey Dahmer, his childhood influences, his victims and the trials and imprisonment, and ultimately his death while in prison. We're not going to rehash those details for you today. Instead, Dr. Webb and our special guest is going to uniquely present these gruesome killings from a forensic pathologist's perspective. Dr. Webb? Thank you, Dr. Sung. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. When you depersonalize another person and view them as just an object, an object for pleasure and not a living, breathing human being, it seems to make it easier to do things you shouldn't do. That was Jeffrey Dahmer. He was an American serial killer and a sex offender who committed murders and dismemberments of 17 young men between 1978 and 1991. Uh, Many of his murders did indeed have a component of necrophilia and cannibalism, and he preferred to preserve and keep body parts of his victims in order to possess them. Dahmer was ultimately discovered and apprehended on July 22, 1991. He was found legally sane and was sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences on February 15, 1992. He later died in Columbia Correctional Institution on November 28, 1994. I have the honor of a very special guest today on this episode. Dr. Jeffrey Jensen received his medical school training at uh, Wayne State Medical School in Detroit, Michigan. He completed a pathology residency and forensic fellowship at Hennepin County Medical Center and at the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was the chief medical examiner for Milwaukee County, Wisconsin from 1987 to 2008. During that time, he completed approximately 45,000 death investigations, personally performed approximately 6,000 autopsies, and testified in courts throughout the United States, including consulting on many high-profile cases. He received his Ph.D. in medical history from the University of Wisconsin in 2007. He has been credited with creating the American Medical Legal Death Investigator Board and the Forensic Autopsy Standards. He was the 2008 president of the National Association of Medical Examiners and a published author of many articles and a fantastic book called Death Investigation in America. Dr. Jensen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me and congratulations on your first season of your project. It's just a, a real honor to be here. Thank you so much. So what was it like in Milwaukee in the 1980s, and how did you become, uh, how did you come to be the chief medical examiner in Milwaukee in 1987? Well, I um, recognized that I had an interest in being a chief medical examiner eventually, and that opportunity came in Milwaukee in 1987. It was uh, a very kind of special time there that the county board was committed to improving the office and developing 
and building a new facility. And I was able to assist in that and take part in the design and, and, and creation of a modern medical examiner uh, system. It also was an opportunity to develop a system of death investigation that had not previously been in effect there. And I'm, uh, I think I'm proudest of the fact that we were able to provide a high level of forensic pathology and at the same time uh, serve the human needs of the population. And this was really early in your career, was it not? Yes, I was uh, right out of my training program. 33 years old. And uh, as I look back on it, if I could have, I would have desired to have a little more time to learn from others. But the on-the-job training I got was really kind of uh, memorable. What were the cases in Milwaukee like in the 1980s? Would you say it was similar to like Detroit today? Or was it a small town feel or was it a large metropolitan type environment? I like to describe Milwaukee as a big little city. Uh, It's a population of a million people. It's very friendly and congenial. Uh, The German uh, word for it is Gemeligkeit, which means uh, friendship. And uh, I felt really at home there, and it was a wonderful place to live and to uh, bring up a family. Milwaukee was a beer town. It was a, you could call it a blue-collar town. Uh, We had the similar kind of uh, deaths and homicide-type cases that you'd normally expect. But we also had, unfortunately, a high number of pediatric homicides, and uh, those were especially difficult and hard to understand. Uh, but we did develop, in the early 90s, a child death review uh, system that is still in effect there today. And Cocaine had just started to appear in the Milwaukee area in the early 90s. It came up through Florida, Miami, eventually through Chicago, which was 70 miles to the south of Milwaukee, and it finally got into Milwaukee in the early 90s. So there was an explosion, what I would consider an explosion, of, of homicides based on drug activity. So on July... 22nd in 1991 was when Jeffrey Dahmer was initially apprehended. Do you remember do you remember that day and how that affected your work? Yes, I certainly remember uh, the evening of July 22nd, but I have to go back a year before that because the previous summer there was a mutilation homicide in a, in a young man in the county that was uh, below Milwaukee. And that case was handled by the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office. And that uh, was a dismemberment murder in a young man. On July 22nd, 1991, I was testifying in that exact case. Uh, I returned home to Milwaukee And then at approximately 1 o'clock at night, my daughter woke me up and said there was a phone call, and my investigator had indicated that they were at a a scene and that the police had opened a refrigerator and there was a human head in the refrigerator. And um, as most forensic pathologists know, that what is often explained or described is not necessarily uh, reality. And so I had my doubts as who I was going to encounter at the scene. But after I arrived at the scene and viewed the uh, contents of the refrigerator, it was indeed a, a, a human head. And there were more bodies and, and body parts in the, in, the, uh, in the room. Do you remember when you became aware or when there was enough suspicion that there may have been a serial killing associated with the mutilation that you described the year before? Well, we had, um, in the Dahmer case, we had looked at the contents of the refrigerator, and then we noticed that there was a portable freezer in the front room. And prior to that point, it was, uh, I think, a manageable situation. But when we opened the freezer, and there were a number of bags, and we were able to identify that there were 
a number of individuals that had been uh, mutilated and um, decapitated, that's when I realized that we were dealing with a a serial murder. So I have a little description here that was um, given in in the articles written at the time, and then I'll get your reaction. In Dahmer's apartment, they found scores of Polaroid pictures. Many of them were human bodies in various stages of dismemberment. Opening the refrigerator revealed the freshly severed head of a black male on the bottom shelf. A more detailed search of the apartment conducted by the Criminal Investigation Bureau revealed a total of four severed heads in Dahmer's kitchen. A total of seven skulls, some painted, some bleached, were found in Dahmer's bedroom and inside a closet. In addition, investigators discovered collected blood drippings upon a tray at the bottom of Dahmer's refrigerator, plus two human hearts and a portion of arm muscle, each wrapped inside plastic bags upon the shelves. In Dahmer's freezer, investigators discovered an entire torso, plus a bag of human organs and flesh stuck to the ice at the bottom. Elsewhere in the apartment, that was apartment 213, investigators discovered two entire skeletons, a pair of severed hands, two severed and preserved penises, a mummified scalp, and in a 57-gallon drum, three further dismembered torsos dissolving in some acid solution, a total of 74 Polaroid pictures detailing the dismemberment of Dahmer's victims were found. And at the time, the article quoted you as saying it was more like dismantling someone's museum than an actual crime scene. Yes. The way that the uh, bodies had been dismembered and the material had been rather meticulously stored, there wasn't a lot of confusion as far as uh, when you get some homicide scenes, there's, there's blood, maybe blood trails, there's sights and smells that you uh, only pick up at homicide scenes. But this one was more of a controlled area of categorized evidence. I would like to mention at the time that the body parts and the photographs are part of what we call trophy taking, is what serial killers will basically take aspects of their victims. It might be clothing, it might be a photograph, it might be actual tissue, and use that to fantasize about the event. And um, that was the situation with Dahmer. The photographs were taken of individuals before, after, and during parts of dissection. As a medical examiner and in reflection of this case, how did you react to the media attention and how did you manage the media aspect of this case? Well, the, uh, the media explosion occurred in an unprecedented way that they really can't, you really can't train for that. Um, the next morning, this happened at one o'clock the next morning, there were 70 newspaper outlets in our parking lot and around the office local, national, and international news. Um, It was a spectacular event uh, for the media. And the area that we're trained as forensic pathologists is to basically release information that is accessible and appropriate to release that has been corroborated and done in a joint release with other agencies so that there's not a lot of confusion or or misinformation. And so I met with the Milwaukee Police Department chief, and we agreed that we would have two press releases, one at 10 o'clock and one at 3 o'clock, to assist with the news schedule, and that we would update the media as information came on the identification and autopsy results of the patients that we were dealing with. And that tended to work out extremely well. We were able to control the flow of news. We were able to take the time to cooperate and confirm our information before release. And what I'm, what I'm pointing at is to let the families know ahead of time before 
it became disseminated in the media. Now, based on that experience, what advice would you have for people who might never have that kind of buildup or training, and then suddenly this happens in their backyard? Well, again, uh, you have to have you have to control the media release. So you have to have designated times of release. You have to have, in some cases, if you have a large office, you designate a professional uh, media person that will assist the medical examiner in doing that. But the other part of it is is that there is going to be a story, and so I like to make that my story. And I like to tell the story the way that it's truthful and factual and not leave it up to someone else to do that. So what I would encourage other people to do is to cooperate with the media, but do so in a controlled environment. Now, let's go back and talk about some of the examination of the specimens. Um, Do you recall what kind of specimens you had to examine and what kind of conditions they were in? Well, there were, there were basically three different types of specimens. There were the specimens that were in the freezer that were well-preserved. They consisted of severed heads and de- defleshed long bones, arms and legs. There were partial skeletons without heads that were in the blue container that contained what we later found out contained a concoction of Soilex, bleach, and... Uh, dish soap, I'm sorry, and muramic acid to uh, deflesh the bones and to make them soft. And then there was another group that were basically skulls that had been processed by Dahmer, cleaned, bleached, and painted with a, what I would call a gray kind of granite textured paint. So what kind of examinations were you able to do on these kind of dismembered parts? Well, the first thing that forensic pathologists do is to identify a body. And without proper identification, you do not have an investigation. So our first point was to uh, identify the bodies. Luckily, each body had been disarticulated in a separate individual pattern, meaning that in one person, the spine was severed between the second and third lumbar disc and another person that may have been the third and fourth thoracic disc. And we were able to use that as kind of a puzzle to piece together skeletons, skulls, and other body parts. So that worked quite well. We also had one of the nation's premier forensic odontologists, Dr. Tom Johnson. And Dr. Johnson was important in making forensic dental identifications. And we also had access to the Milwaukee Police Department's fingerprint division who gave us their top personnel. And many of the bodies were identified by fingerprints because those were typically the bodies that were in the freezer because the the tissue and the ridge detail on the fingerprints had been maintained, almost pristine. Wow. Had you ever worked with dismembered parts prior to this case? Well, as I mentioned, the dismembered case that I had worked with only before was done a year before, and I was testifying on that case. Uh, I would mention that after I returned to my home from the Dahmer scene, I called the prosecutor up in the county that I was testifying in, and I alerted him to the fact that there were 11 dismembered bodies 20 miles away, and that that may affect his uh, trial. (laughs) How did you know how to best approach these kind of, like a dismembered scene? I don't know if I would know what to do if I had 11 dismembered bodies. Let me just point out that when you go to a crime scene, there is so much information and evidence that is basically... Uh, you're observing and being told at the time. It's it's kind of like an information overload. And uh, I mentioned the sights, sounds, and smells of a homicide scene. And what it does is it creates what we call a fog of war. And what that means is there's so much information coming in is that you can't see through the fog and you can't see the whole picture yourself because you're honed in on a certain aspect of it. And that's why you need 
other individuals that are at the scene, other trained pathologists that can advise you on areas that you're missing or that you haven't seen. And I would also say that photography is very important because you can always go back to the photos and look at photos and recreate the scene because you're seeing things, but your brain can't process it. And so uh, over the last uh, 25 years or so, I have gained more information about the case by just looking at or be visualizing other photographs. Were you able to determine cause of death in any of the dismembered individuals that you found in that apartment? Well, I'll just say that the Jeffrey Dahmer case was was very um, a very rare experience for a forensic pathologist because Dahmer had basically confessed to the murders and had basically talked at will to one of the police investigators. And so we had the opportunity that when we saw something that was questionable, we could call the police department and have immediate access to Dahmer and inquire about what were the injuries that we were seeing. We were able to not identify the specific cause of death in a number of cases because we didn't have the intact bodies and tissues and that type thing. In one case, I had opened up a skull, as we would typically do in an autopsy procedure, and I noticed that there was an area of hemorrhage around a single hole. And when I looked at the brain tissue underneath it, there was actually a wound track, a pathway through the uh, brain tissue. And I took samples of that tissue and then looked at it under the microscope, and I could see that there was an inflammatory reaction of white blood cells towards that area which tells the pathologist that there is an infection and that that infection takes time. So this person actually had this hole placed in his skull and then there was a, what we found out later, there was a needle that injected uh, bleach and other acid into the brain that Dahmer used to try to make these individuals uh, zombie-like. And There were four skulls that had holes drilled into them, but each one was different. One was one hole, one two, one three, and one four. And I hypothesized that Dahmer was trying to experiment on how best to create these zombies and at the same time keep his patients alive. And so the individual that we saw just had one whole, but I assume it was, you, you could see that that in time, that was what he was doing. Of the cases that you had a difficult time determining the cause of death, did you ever have to use terminology like homicidal violence or anything like that as a cause of death? I don't recall if I specifically used it in this case, but I have used it in other cases. And homicidal violence is basically when you don't have the objective documented evidence of an injury that caused the death, but the circumstances of the remains, the location, other historical aspects of it allow you to come to the conclusion within a reasonable medical certainty that the death was caused and inflicted by another person. Let's say, for instance, I had two cases uh, in my Milwaukee career that bodies were found under uh, 10 inches of concrete. And in looking at those bodies, they had been wrapped in tarps, and the bodies had deteriorated because the time frame was between eight, five and eight years, and I was not able to find a cause of death. So I termed that the death was caused by homicidal violence and testified to that in court later to find out that the individuals were basically killed by asphyxiation with a bag over their head as they were being tortured in drug-related activity. What would be your advice to medical examiners that could possibly come face-to-face with a case like this? What, what were some of the things that you learned from this experience, and what are the 
the key things that you took away that really changed your practice of pathology after that point? Well, I can remember one thing that I, that I thought I had done wrong, and that was that I had tried to do too much myself and not to delegate that to others, that my time was no more valuable dealing with other questions and issues that were coming up rather than doing the actual examinations. Overall, I don't think that it could have turned out much better. There was an issue with the Milwaukee Police Department uh, and one of the victims, Conor uh, uh, Synthesophone, who was a young man and um, Dahmer was actually, had actually drilled him in the head and he had escaped out into the community. He was naked, and he was delusional, and Dahmer was able to go out and bring him back into the residence against the opposition of local community leaders that didn't want, you know, that saw this as was a young boy, and Dahmer was able to convince them that this was a consensual sexual arrangement, and the boy was returned to Dahmer's custody and he took him back to his apartment and killed him. And that caused a lot of concern in the Milwaukee community and the way the police department had handled that. And it basically took the attention away from the actual Dahmer's other victims and focused it on Conorak. I would say that as far as advice for dealing with serial killers, if you are an active forensic pathologist and you spend any number of years in doing forensic pathology, you will encounter serial killers. And in my practice over 30 years, I can point to at least four serial killers that I have been involved with and have autopsied and have been involved in the investigation. And many times you don't know you're dealing with a serial killer because the deaths may occur uh, separated in time, space, and location, and you're unable to connect, make those connections. And I think the more we can kind of use artificial intelligence maybe in the future to kind of connect homicide cases together as far as location, mode, method, etc., we will be more successful in identifying these individuals. Dr. Jensen, I can't tell you what an honor it has been to have you here with us today. It's always a pleasure to uh, have an opportunity to sit with you, and I hope you really enjoyed your time here with us. Thanks again for the invitation, and I look forward to hearing more of the podcast. Well, thank you, Dr. Jensen. I think your insight to this case is incredible, and hearing it from you is incredibly valuable. And I also want to thank you for your years of service and your contribution to not only the University of Michigan, but also forensic pathology in general. And thank you again for coming on with us. Now, in this next segment, I want to look at things from the other spectrum. We have Dr. Teresa Wynn here with us. She is our current forensic pathology fellow, and she'll be wrapping up her fellowship in June of this year. So looking at it from her perspective, I want to welcome her to our family, Dr. Wynn. Hi, Dr. Sung. Thanks for having me. Can you please just introduce yourself? Of course. Uh, again, my name is Teresa Wynn, and as Dr. Sung said, I am currently one of the Forensic Pathology Fellows at the University of Michigan, and I work in conjunction with Dr. Sung at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office, as well as the Washtenaw County Medical Examiner's Office. And you mentioned you are one of the fellows, so we currently have two positions. Yes, we have two positions. The other fellow is Dr. Anna Richmond. Um, both of us work at both Wayne County and Washtenaw County Medical Examiner's offices. How was it that you found yourself in the field of pathology? Well, in general, uh, my path to medicine was quite convoluted. Uh, I think very different from the typical physician. Uh, I was not uh, the person, the individual that always knew they wanted to be a physician. I didn't grow up saying, oh, I want to be a doctor. It wasn't until my last years in undergraduate studies at The Ohio State University, I was born and bred a Buckeye, um, 
at that point, I knew I wanted a science career, but I was trying to, to decide between either medicine or research. And then after doing a couple of volunteer opportunities in the hospital, that's when I decided I wanted a career that had uh, some patient interaction or patient-oriented care. And so I chose medicine. So I applied to medical schools, and thankfully, I got into medical school in Toledo, Ohio. And then while in medical school, I did some clinical rotations. So during your third and fourth year, you do these things called clinical rotations uh, where you actually go work on the hospital floors or in the outpatient clinics. And that's when you're most exposed to different fields of medicine. So you do surgery, uh, you do internal medicine, et cetera. And that was really where I started to rule in, rule out fields of medicine. Uh, I actually started medical school thinking that I would do obstetrics and gynecology and how quickly I changed my mind after being on the rotation. I enjoyed delivering babies, but I didn't like the other aspects of OB-GYN. And so that's when I ruled out obstetrics and gynecology. To be honest, <laughs> uh, pathology was never on my radar prior to that. I didn't really consider pathology until my third and fourth year of medical school. And the story behind that is basically during your third and fourth year, um, you sign up for classes, at least in Toledo. We signed up for classes online, and it was a first-come, first-served basis. I, unfortunately, um, was too late in scheduling, and so I got stuck one month um, doing the rotation, the, the rotations that no one else wanted to do. And so I got stuck with doing a two-week rotation at the coroner's office in Toledo, Ohio. I was not looking forward to it, was not excited about it. But I can honestly say that when I was on the rotation, I absolutely loved it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the science behind it, doing autopsies, the dissection. The pathologists that I worked with um, were quite influential to me. And one of them in particular, one of the forensic pathologists at that office was the one that really highly recommended that I probably should go into forensic pathology. And so that really was what initially sparked my interest in forensic pathology. I think that's one of the interesting things about medicine and life, you never know what that spark, what yeah. that thing is that really mm -hmm. draws you towards one field or another. Exactly. Because again, I that was literally towards the end of my third year. And at that point, um, I had actually had my heart set on family medicine and going like the geriatric route. I did a lot of rural family medicine health um, conferences and projects. Um, and it was just by chance I did this rotation and realized that um, forensics and pathology and specifically forensics was for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so advice for any medical student or actually any student in general, you just want to keep an open mind about things. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I have always said that to all aspiring medical students that keep an open mind, uh, never close anything out, especially on your clinical rotations. I think because you truly don't experience hands-on medicine until your third and fourth year. Mm -hmm. So yeah, keeping an open mind is probably the best advice for them. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to go into the field of forensic pathology, you mm -hmm. have to go through a pathology residency. Yes. So can you tell us about residency and also some of the things that you had to either face or go through already knowing that forensics was probably what you're going yeah. through. Yeah. Um, so just to give some people an idea, so most pathology residency programs are four years, uh, and that's where you get trained in the branches of pathology. Those are anatomic and clinical pathology. Uh, I like to say anatomic pathology is a study of disease utilizing organs and tissues and, of course, autopsy. And then clinical pathology is the branch where you study disease utilizing laboratory methods. Uh, so Dr. Sung and I have this in common that we were lucky enough to do our uh, pathology residency program at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. And just to speak about my residency experience, I absolutely loved it. I think it was an amazing experience. The program itself is outstanding. It has a really small residency size, allowing for personal teaching. Um, we had many attending pathologists and PhD uh, staff uh, that gave us a really balanced anatomic and clinical pathology education. And then I think what kind of Dr. Sung was alluding to, um, the staff there was just quite supportive about uh, whatever specialty you wanted to go into. And so prior to my residency, as Dr. Sung said, uh, I was very much interested in forensics. And so I actually chose Beaumont um, because, again, I knew they were supportive in forensics. Um, many of their past residents went on to become forensic pathologists. And so for me, I knew that that program was for me. Mm -hmm. 
As you're going through residency, Dr. Wynn, you eventually do have to select either direct entry into practice or an additional fellowship or mm-hmm. additional training. Yes. What were some of your thought processes in deciding your fellowship, where to go, and so on and so forth? So at the end of your four-year pathology residency, you have the choice of either going and practicing general pathology or going and doing a fellowship. And fellowship is basically uh, more training to become more specialized. And so in forensic pathology, that's a one-year training program. I know of around 40 accredited forensic pathology fellowship programs in the United States. And for forensic pathology, applying for the fellowship it's exactly like applying for a job. Not many people know that. Um, you basically fill out an application, submit any documents that you might ask for, and then you do an interview. And if they like you, <laughs> if you're qualified, and then they'll offer you a position. Um, there are some requirements that uh, are needed. Um, one, you have to finish your pathology residency program, uh, um, graduate from your pathology residency. And then also um, there's a, a couple of board examinations or licensing examinations that you must complete. And those are called the USMLE step exams. Um, And again, you complete those during your residency. And other documents they might ask for is your CV, a personal statement, letters of recommendation from pathologists and specifically forensic pathologists. I had to submit those. And then uh, you go on your interview and the interview consists of you meeting the forensic pathologist and then also uh, touring the office. And then again, if uh, they see you as a favorable candidate, then they might offer you a position. For me, it wasn't really the application process that was the hardest part of uh, applying for fellowship. It was actually uh, trying to decipher what type of program I wanted to go to, what type of fellowship I wanted. And there were certain things that I considered when looking for a program. And I think there are important points um, for those residents that are interested in forensic pathology to consider, such as a volume size. Is it high volume or small volume? How busy is the office? Is it in the city or is it in a more rural community or county? Also, I considered a university affiliation because a lot of times if it's affiliated with a large university, then you have teaching opportunities as well as research opportunities. And then lastly, what I thought was really important was when I was on the interviews, I really looked at the office dynamic, seeing if it's an office that prides itself in more individualistic work or is it a team-based system. Um, And I think those things were really helpful to consider when I was trying to look for a fellowship. Yeah, these are all very personal decisions, very personal Mm -hmm. uh, choices that you make. And uh, obviously, you want to make the best choice for yourself. But mm-hmm. it's as you said, it's very hard to know because yes. you're looking at a black and white either book or yes. on, on the Internet. Yeah. And those fine details, you can't really know until you're actually physically there. there. Yeah, there. And that's why I think the interview actually is, is really important. I think some people think that it's just a minor thing. But I think uh, for anyone interested in forensic pathology, future fellow candidates, really pay attention to your interview about the office and how the office works. Mm-hmm. So you chose this fellowship, and what was it about it that made you come here? Yeah, so I would say the most rewarding aspect of this fellowship in particular is definitely um, working in the two different offices. That has only been advantageous for me. I kind of just spoke about the important things that you need to consider in a program. Um, Well, working at these two different offices has allowed me to not have to pick. I get to experience all of everything that I just said was important. Um, Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office is a high-volume center uh, with a variety of complex cases in an inner-city setting. It services both um, inner-city Detroit as well as the greater Detroit area. The Washtenaw County Medical Examiner's Office um, has taught me forensic medicine in a smaller rural setting, and this has allowed me more interaction with the local community. The Washtenaw County Medical Examiner's Office is also housed within the University of Michigan campus, And so to have that close affiliation with the University of Michigan has really allowed me to uh, be involved with other aspects of medicine, um, such as giving me so many research opportunities. I've worked on a lot of quality improvement and safety projects. And then of particular interest to me has always been education and teaching. Um, And because I work at both offices, I help uh, to teach the residents, both uh, the University of Michigan residents as well as residents from the Detroit area. And that includes Beaumont Hospital, Wayne State, Henry Ford, and St. John's. And so I've really enjoyed doing that. And so I would say 
anyone who's interested in forensic fellowship should really consider the University of Michigan um, because I think um, we're one of those rare opportunities where you get to experience two different offices um, and get what I say, the complete and more well-rounded forensic pathology experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely shameless plug, but that's (laughs) that's okay. That's okay. Uh, Dr. Wynn, what have you enjoyed about the fellowship? And also, what haven't you liked so much? (laughs) I would say, besides having the two offices and working at two different offices, the other highlight is that I've been able to, through my fellowship, work with amazing people, great staff at both offices. And that's in, that includes um, the forensic pathologists, the autopsy attendants or assistants, the pathologist assistants, photographers, investigators, and all the ancillary staff. Um, they really have educated me, supported me, and helped me. And really, I wouldn't be here um, this far along in my fellowship or my career without them. Uh, and it's just been a privilege working with everyone at both uh, Wayne County and Washington County Medical Examiner's Office. So thank you, Dr. Sung. You're part of that. (laughs) Again, being in in two offices and being able to work with more than, you know, five or six or however many, you know, pathologists that we have, it's been um, just been um, so great. Low lights. Uh, I would say many people might say the call schedule is a low light. Uh, Our call schedule here as a fellow is that you're on call or basically you work at Wayne County every other weekend because our office is seven days a week. I don't know how other offices run, but um, that's how we are. Um, I have never had any issues with it. I think it just gives you more experience. And weekends aren't that bad. Um, We we usually are uh, done by noon. Um, But I think that could be considered a low light. And then another low light in general that I kind of considered was uh, this is actually a board certification uh, specialty. So that means that you get an exam <laughs> at the end of this. Um, it's not like other specialties where you just do more training. And so uh, I get to look forward an exam at the end of my fellowship in order to become board certified in forensic pathology. So I guess those are the not so good aspects of the fellowship. It can be challenging to balance the workload, and also the study yes. time. Yes, exactly. Yeah, study book reading. Reading is, has been a little bit hard. But. Mm-hmm. Something that we have here at this office as far as fellowship training is what I like to call graduated levels of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And when you first enter fellowship, you have certain amount of skills that you have to demonstrate. But as you advance through your training, we expect more and more yes. of you. How have you prepared for that level of responsibility during fellowship and ultimately when you come in and join us as a staff physician? Yeah, as Dr. Sung said, um, here they really graduate you slowly into becoming an attending. And I think all fellowships are like that in pathology where it's, uh, you know, in the beginning you taught me how to eviscerate and then I slowly did that by myself. And then uh, you do one case and then you get two cases per day. And so, again, just slow graduated education. And so um, I think by the time I was, I would say, second or third month in, I was doing cases by myself. I think this fellowship affords you a lot of autonomy. Here at Wayne County, uh, I was able to really focus in on my own cases, and it was um, encouraged that I treat these cases as if I was the only one doing them, that I had no supervision. Uh, But as a fellow, you always are supervised. And so I think early on, I really took advantage of that, of having the independence to do my own cases, write my own reports. And then, of course, um, when I submit them to the attendings, they revise them and uh, discuss with me any mistakes or anything to make my reports better. As far as currently, I'm slowly transitioning to becoming what we call a junior attending. And what that is, is that I'm slowly going to have my own signing days. Uh, Again, in the background, I'm supervised by Dr. Sung, but uh, I kind of discussed with my attendings that I would like to have a transition period where I would be a junior attending for about a month or so before I actually start working as a full-time attending physician. And I think that will help um, decrease any overwhelming feelings I might have transitioning to an attending physician. Now, if you could sum up your biggest challenge in fellowship, what would that be? So I had a lot of experience with autopsy itself, so I wasn't really nervous about doing autopsies or dissection at Wayne County or Washtenaw County Medical Examiner's Office. My anxiety, actually, during fellowship was really the other aspects of it, which is testimony. I have never experienced court, um, thankfully, personally or professionally. I've never been in court. 
uh, and I've never given any type of testimony, haven't done any depositions. And so um, that was, for me, something that I was most nervous about. Um, thankfully, our fellowship program, you get to experience that. I know a lot of other fellowship programs rarely get to testify, but I know many of our fellows have gotten many opportunities to testify. And so I actually also had an opportunity back in um, December, January time. Um, that was the first time I testified. Thankfully, here at this office, they really supported me and prepared me. We had a conference where a prosecuting attorney uh, gave us a lecture and a mock trial. And then each of the attendings, each of them individually uh, sat me down and spoke to me about their experience with testimony, pointers of what to do and what not to do. And then uh, with Dr. Sung, I went over a few questions that I might be asked about my expertise as well as about the case uh, that I was testifying in in general. And so that really eased and prepared me for my first time testifying. No matter what, though, it was nerve wracking and overwhelming. But after I did it, I think I did okay, <laughs> And um, I think now I'm prepared for it. So I would say for me, that was probably a big hurdle for me in fellowship. For sure you're always going to have a little bit of that anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually healthy. You don't want to be completely comfortable and complacent when you're walking into a courtroom. You want to be prepared, but yes. also there might be that chance that the attorney might be a little more aggressive than you were expecting. And most all attorneys are extremely professional. They're there to get you to detail your autopsy findings. They're not there to rail on you. They're not there to belittle you. Mm -hmm. So most of the time, they're 100% professional. But every once in a while, you're going to get a very hard line of questioning. And that's where that anxiety, if you, yes. if you have it, <laughs> prepares you for that. Yes. And you're right. You don't know how you're going to perform on the stand until you're actually on, on the, the stand. stand. <laughs> <laughs> and as I said before, um, the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office really prepared me for the first time I testified. Dr. Schmidt actually was the uh, attending physician that came with me when I testified in court. And he actually sat in the courtroom and listened to me testify and gave me pointers afterwards, which I think is very helpful. And uh, again, I think that all would just help me um, the many future times that I'll be testifying throughout my career. Yeah, it's a little bit different. We have our expertise, our mm -hmm. training, all the autopsies that we've done to enter into court with a very good basis of knowledge. And you're there to detail what you saw during the autopsy and give your opinion based on that. So it's not exactly what you might see on TV yeah, and exactly. in movies where they're just going to, once again, attack you. It's, it's really not like that. And I think on the whole, the experience is a very good one. Yes. Yeah. I had uh, My first experience wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And it's exactly what Dr. Sung said. The attorneys were very nice. They were just asking the factual information regarding um, what I saw in autopsy, um, not like the movies. Mm -hmm. Now you're wrapping up your fellowship. Yes. And you have really only a couple months more. And then it's going to be your line, your signature on oh, the no. death certificate. <laughs> if you had or if you could turn back the clock, would you mm. do anything different? Um, I would say the only thing that I would do differently is I wish I would have done more. And what I mean by that is the one year goes by very, very fast. I think you know this, Dr. Sun. And um, there are many things that I wish I would have done more. And um, one of the things is I wish I would have uh, done more and started early on um, the research projects. Um, I think here it's research is very supported and encouraged. And uh, two attendings in particular, Dr. Schmidt and Dr. Webb, uh, really uh, encouraged and taught me how important it is to be involved with research and be kept up to date with research. And so I wish I would have done that a little bit earlier. And so to all the residents and future fellows, I would say, if you can, and if you're interested in forensic pathology, try to be involved with uh, research or projects in forensic pathology. Um, another thing that I probably would say and suggest is I would uh, really recommend the residents and medical students to do a lot of away rotations. I was lucky enough to do array rotations in different states. Um, I did it Florida, Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky. Um, and it was through those away rotations, I kind of learned how medicine is in different areas of the, of the country. And I think that that uh, just broadens your view of medicine. It allows you to experience different offices. And I think that will set you up to know what type of career in medicine you want. For instance, where you want to practice uh, and in what office you want to practice in. And so 
I wish I would have done more aware electives as well, just again, um, so I could broaden my view of medicine. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to take a slight transition, and we're going to welcome in on the mic Dr. Reyes. And the reason why I'm having him come on today is because he is one of our newest staff pathologists here. So as you, Dr. Wynn, are becoming a staff pathologist, mm-hmm. hopefully some of the tips that he can give exactly. you as <laughs> he experienced them in mm-hmm. his first year will help you uh, grow yourself. Dr. Dr. Reyes? Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me here. Regarding starting a new position as a staff, transitioning to a new office and starting a new position can be challenging. However, you will remain here with us and you're familiar with all the staff in this office. It will be a smooth transition for you. Uh, My experience had been great in the past year. I had a lot of support from the uh, wonderful staff here, which made uh, my transition easier than I was expecting. I enjoy working here every day and I'm looking forward to more years ahead. Uh, My recommendation for you as a new staff is to always make sure that the information that you are provided from investigations are consistent with uh, what you find on post-mortem exam and always question any findings that you might think is not consistent with the post-mortem picture. For example, Dr. Wynn, just recently I did an autopsy on a young woman who was involved in a motor vehicle collision. Mm -hmm. She did go to the hospital and she had x-rays done and the x-ray did show a number of rib fractures which we found on autopsy. But something that wasn't immediately visualized on x-ray was that she had two very large fractures of her vertebrae. Mm. And that just underscores the value of the autopsy in conjunction with the findings that you might get from the hospital or investigations or other areas. So you want to Combine all of that information to your final diagnosis and making your reports. And it's not that we are pointing fingers at the hospital saying, why didn't mm-hmm. they see this or that? It's We have different things at our disposal that physicians in the hospital setting don't have. Now, something that, as a fellow, you have that insulation from, from mistakes because you have a staff, staff supervising. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Now, for yourself, Dr. Reyes, when you're signing your line, your your signature on the death certificate or on the autopsy report, you know, there's that increased level of responsibility. Was that difficult or did you have any trouble? Yeah, um, so I wouldn't say it was difficult, but I was definitely nervous when uh, signing out uh, my first few cases. However, uh, my confidence was building up with more cases that I did, and I have no problem with signing out any cases without a supervising staff. And you'll see that in some cases you might be uncertain regarding what cause of death or what the manner should be classified. And in these cases, you can always ask other staff opinion. And I started this job when Dr. Webb was also starting, so we helped each other out and we consulted each other. So uh, my recommendation to you is to consult the other uh, pathologists in the office if you have any questions or you need their opinions. Dr. Wynn, do you have any questions for Dr. Reyes? You um, put him on the hot seat? Let's see here. I think uh, we kind of elaborated. Maybe some of the questions that you asked me, I kind of want to ask him. So... I would say we kind of discussed how I was lucky enough in fellowship to be at two offices. And now you have experienced two offices from where you went from fellowship to here. Was there any major differences, anything that uh, was challenging coming from um, your previous office as a fellow and then coming here at Wayne? So the main challenge for me was the number of cases here and coming from a smaller volume office to a higher one might be challenging, but I got used to the uh, workflow here three months into my job. And 
Now I have no problem keeping up with this number, although it's large number, but it's manageable. Yeah, I think that's something that might initially intimidate people when they hear about going to work in a large office and the large volume, and they're, they maybe they trained in a smaller place. Uh, that should not exclude you from seeking employment in that in that facility. Because as you said, Dr. Reyes, you do adapt, you do learn how to make yourself more efficient and how to manage the autopsy room. And those skills are just part of uh, expanding your own strengths in forensic pathology. I agree. And the workflow here helps a lot in uh, making everyone super efficient. So we do anywhere between 10 to 12 autopsies per day. And without the support of the PAs and other members of the staff, it would be challenging to do. Uh, now, Dr. Reyes, I chose to come here because I did my fellowship here and uh, was aware of the office and was quite comfortable in the office. But again, you came from a different facility in your fellowship. Uh, so why did you choose to come to the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office? So there are many reasons why I chose to practice here. First and most important is that I wanted to start my career in a big city where I can be exposed to different variety of cases. And I think that is important for any forensic pathologist who is starting fresh out of fellowship to pick a place where they will improve their experience by doing more cases. Second is family ties. I have family in this area. Um, looking, I was looking for a program or institution that can sponsor my immigration paperwork, uh, and I was lucky enough to find it here. So all these reasons made me choose this place. Yeah, something you said that was that I think is incredibly important is the family ties or the support mm-hmm. system that you have. Uh, forensic pathology can be traumatic, not only in the injuries that you see, but psychologically speaking. There has to be a way that you can let off steam or decompress at the end of the day. And if you have family or if you have a social circle in the area, that really helps a lot. And it separates out you and helps you clear out your mind. And that's one of the reasons why I stuck around. I agree with you, Dr. Sung. Family is very important, especially in our field, uh, where we see people committing uh, horrific things upon others. So, yes, family is important. So, Dr. Reyes, now that you're wrapping up your first year, was there anything that you didn't expect to encounter and you first signed on? Well, I knew this is a busy office, but I was not expecting to handle a large number of cases and a pandemic like COVID-19. It was an interesting and exciting year for me, and the pandemic uh, made it more challenging, but I'm surprised that we all could handle this increased number of cases. Something that's hard, I think, for all medical examiners out there is experiencing this pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm sure nobody was expecting this to happen. And during the process of this pandemic, we really learned a lot about the office, about each other, about all of the different equipment that you need. And you might think that your office is well-stocked, but soon you'll find out if it really is or not. And you'll learn who you can trust and who you can count on. You really need that strong foundation in the office. You have to have you know, good office managers. You have to have good administration, autopsy technicians, photographers. All of those individuals are key to the office performing and performing well. It's not just doing the job, but you have to keep everybody safe, but also be able to do the autopsies in a professional manner. I guess um, the last question I have is just any last advice before I uh, begin my that position here at Wayne County? Well, my advice to you is to uh, be confident. Don't second-guess yourself. Uh, you're trained well, and you did well in your fellowship. So you have it all, and think you are ready to start as a staff. Thanks, Dr. Reyes. You're welcome. 
Dr. Reyes, Dr. Wynn, thank you for joining us on this last episode of the first season of Detroit's Daily Docket. And I'd just like to close out this first season with a thank you to the listeners for coming along with us on this journey. And Dr. Reyes will keep our Instagram up even through this break that we're having between season one and season two. If you have questions, definitely send them his way. If you have suggestions for episodes and things that you want to hear, once again, send those to him and he'll get that to the rest of us. So as we wrap up this first season, keep looking at our Instagram because eventually we will post when season two is going to start. And one of our goals through this whole podcast was to introduce forensic pathology to everybody and entice high school students, medical school students, residents to the field of forensic pathology. I know that there are a very few other podcasts out there that are also engaging the public in forensic pathology, such as the podcast created by Drs. Jordan Taylor and Nicole Kroom, Dead Men Do Tell Tales. These are all ways that forensic pathology can reach out to the general public. So once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening.